Join me and let's ask God's blessing on our study. Father, thank you for your, your word tonight. We thank you, Lord, that your word is true, that every word is sure, and that all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, for correction. And Lord, we need all of that and more. Lord, we, we need uh, your encouragement in our lives. We need your instruction. We need for you to shine a light upon our path. And so we pray tonight, Lord, that you would indeed speak to us uh, through your word. Encourage our faith. Give us wisdom for life. Lord, give us a rallying cry to rejoice in our Savior. Lord, do all that tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2006, American doctors, believe it or not, wrote over 190 million prescriptions for antidepressants. It seems today we are swimming in a sea of Prozac and Paxil. I'm not debating the legitimate use of these drugs, but I think many people lose a piece of the human experience by numbing unpleasant emotions instead of grappling with them and learning from them. You know, life is a mix of pleasure and pain of beauty and boredom, of joy and sorrow. The Psalms are all about God's people expressing their emotions to God. Rather than numb, the Psalms embrace both pain and pleasure. Lois Cheney has a poem that sums up how we deal with emotion in modern times. She says, feeling blue, buy some clothes. Feeling lonely, turn on the radio. Feeling despondent? Read a funny book. Feeling bored? Watch TV. Feeling empty? Eat a Sunday. Feeling worthless? Clean the house. Feeling sad? Tell a joke. Ain't this modern age wonderful? You don't got to feel nothing. There's a substitute for everything. God have mercy on us. You know, even some Christians want to escape life's unpleasant feelings rather than let God use them to mold and shape and deepen our lives. The Psalms teach us that both pleasure and pain are opportunities for God to speak into our lives. There are lessons learned only on the peaks of elation, and there are lessons learned only in the valley of despair. The book of Psalms will take you to both places. Well, Psalm 107 is a song of Exodus. And of course, when we think of Exodus, we think of the Hebrews' exit from Egypt and the cruelties of the Pharaoh. But Scripture speaks of four different exits. First, in 1445 B.C., Moses led the Hebrews out of Egypt. Second, in 535 B.C., Zerubbabel led the Jewish captives out of Babylon back to the land to rebuild their temple and their homeland. Third, in the last days... Jews scattered all across the world will be regathered to their ancient homeland. I believe this exodus has begun in our lifetime. We're seeing it right now. And the last exodus is spiritual. It's that exit that we've all experienced who know Jesus, that exit we've experienced from sin into new life through Christ. Well, Psalm 107 begins rejoicing in our exodus. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Isn't that great? What, what a great... Let, let's read it again. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, 
for his mercies endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. God's mercies are too expensive and too expansive to be worked off or repaid on your own. The redeemed only have one obligation. Just say so. Just give testimony to what God's done. If God has rescued you, all he asks for you in return is to speak up. Let his mercies be known. Tell someone what God has done for you. Our praise should go public. Tell somebody. Verse 3, God has redeemed and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Over the centuries of the diaspora, or of the Jewish dispersion. The Jews have been scattered all across the globe. And today, Jews come in all different stripes and types. Jews born in Israel are called sabras. It's a name given after the prickly cactus that grows. It's indigenous to the Holy Land. The sabra is prickly and tough on the exterior, but it yields some very sweet fruit. The Israelis like to see themselves as having the same characteristics, prickly on the outside, but sweet on the inside. There are also Falasha Jews. These are black Jews from Ethiopia. Also Russian Jews you'll find in Israel. They're the most recent immigrants to Israel. Ashkenazi Jews, these are Jews from Germanic and European descent. Sephardic Jews, they come from Spain and from North Africa. Mizraim Jews, they come from the Middle East and from Central Asia. Uh, there are Yemenite Jews, there are Pakistani Jews, there are Iraqi Jews, there are Persian Jews, there are Syrian Jews. These are Jews with the Middle Eastern uh, racial ethnicity. And then there's even a group of Jews, Chinese Jews. They're known as the Kaifeng Jews, who have existed for hundreds of years in the Henan province of China. It's amazing. Jews from all over that have all different types of ethnic backgrounds. But here's the point. In the last days, Jews from all over the world, east and west, north and south, the psalmist says, will return to Eretz Israel. The land of Israel. They'll come home. We're seeing it before our eyes right now. Now there are actually five movements in Psalm 107. God delivers His people from the wilderness. He delivers them from prison. He delivers them from their own foolishness. Perhaps you've been there. He delivers them from the storm and He delivers them from the famine. In verses 1 through 9, God saves His people from the heat of the wilderness. In verse 4, the psalmist speaks of the days of their dispersion. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them out of their distresses. And He led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Man, it's exciting to go to Jerusalem today and see these different ethnic Jews from all over the world now dwelling together in the same place. He says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men, for He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Boy, life without Jesus is a spiritual desert. It's Jesus that brings brings us from famished 
into fullness. It's Jesus who brings us from longing into belonging. And the least we can do when he does is to say thanks. In verses 10 through 16, God delivers us from the ball and chain of imprisonment. He says, those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High, therefore He brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and He saved them out of their distresses. Now now notice both the cause and the cure of their bondage. The cause was rebellion. We're told they rebelled against the words of God. But notice the cure. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Here's the progression of sin. It it starts with the cause. It ends with the cure. But in between, there are all kinds of complications. Have you noticed this? That sin complicates There's no doubt that once we sin, it complicates circumstances. It convolutes relationships. But sometimes we we tend to draw from that that the cause and the cure are just as convoluted and just as confused as are the complications. Not so. You know, the cause and the cure for our sin is usually very straightforward. Sin is caused by rebellion. Rebellion against the words of God. And the cure is always the same and always simple. Repentance, turning back to God and away from sin. Just because the complications are, are, are convoluted and, and puzzled and mixed up doesn't mean that the cause and the cure are that convoluted. They're pretty simple. You got in trouble because you rebelled. You'll get out of trouble when you repent. Verse 14. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. For He has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. In verses 17 to 22, God delivers the foolish man from his own mistakes. He says, Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food. And they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He saved them out of their distresses. He sent His word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. You know, a man is a fool, and he suffers often from his own sin. God sends His word and heals him. That's that's my story. That's probably your story as well. And if that's your story, how should you respond? Again, too many Christians remain numb and mum. They freeze rather than be emotional and expressive. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. The psalmist says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare His works with rejoicing. Rejoice and take joy if you have been redeemed and brought out of trouble by the Lord. Well, in verses 23 through 32, God delivers us from the storms at sea. He says, those who go down to the ship, to the sea in ships, 
who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord in His wonders in the deep. Now Israel's northern neighbors, the Phoenicians, they were the sailors of the day. The Israelis themselves, they were not a maritime people. Their only voyages were out of necessity. In fact, the Jews viewed the sea as mysterious and dangerous. You know, the Bible often uses the sea as a metaphor for evil. And the Jews mistakenly allowed fear to override their faith, and so they stayed away from the sea. Here, though, he's talking about a storm at sea. Verse 25, For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. One year, I got talked into going deep sea fishing with a friend of mine. And we were in, oh, probably a 25, 30 foot boat on maybe three foot seas. And we were fine going out there. But we tied off on one of those oil rigs out in the uh, gulf down there. And, and we tied off and we started fishing. And that boat started pitching back and forth and back and forth. And, and I suppose it wasn't a big deal for an old salt. But I'm telling you, it took me all of about three minutes before I turned green. And I started tossing my lunch overboard. It was terrible.
or financial famine. God often gets our attention by drying up rivers and turning fruitfulness into barrenness. Yet once again, God has taught the lesson. He is just as easy, easy and quick to reverse the process and bring about fruitfulness where there was barrenness. He says, he turns a wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs. There he makes the hungry dwell that they may establish a city for a dwelling place and sow fields and plant vineyards that they may yield a fruitful harvest. He also blesses them and they multiply greatly and he does not let their cattle decrease when they are diminished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. Yet he sets the poor on high, far from affliction, and makes their families like a flock. The righteous see it and rejoice, and all iniquity stops its mouth. God uses bouts with barrenness to shut up the proud. But again, how should the righteous respond Whoever is wise will observe these things and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Now Psalm 108 is a composite of two previous psalms. Verses 1 through 5 are from Psalm 57. Verses 6 through 13 are from Psalm 60. Now, I like Charles Spurgeon, the comment that he makes about Psalm 108 and the repetition of these psalms. He says, the Holy Spirit is not short of expression that he needs to repeat himself. In other words, God's rep repetition isn't because he lacks new material. When God repeats himself, it's because he wants to make a point. There's an emphasis he wants to make. There's a point he wants to stress. Now, Psalm 57 was written while David was on the run from King Saul. Psalm 60 was penned after Saul was dead and David had become king. If you put the two psalms together, they show just how far God brought David. I mean, God brought this man from fugitive status to king over all the land. He brought him from runaway to ruler. It just goes to prove that God's grace always cuts you to the head of the line. God takes us at our lowest point and he lifts us up and sets us on high. Psalm 108 begins, Oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise even with my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. In other words, I'm up early. I greet each new day with praise to God. Let me ask you, when you wake up in the morning, do you say, good Lord, it's morning? Or do you say, good morning, Lord? Reminds me of the rooster who bragged that the reason the sun came up every morning was just to hear him crow. David awoke crowing and worshiping and praising God. He says, I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand, and hear me. God has spoken in His holiness. 
I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. These were all regions and tribes within the promised land. He goes on, Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Over Philistia I will triumph. These were the enemy's lands that were about to be taken by God. Here we're told that God casts His shoe over Edom. Apparently, you know, we're going to talk tonight about God's shoes and God's socks. We're going to show you a picture of God's socks in, in a minute. But right now He says He casts His shoe over Edom. Remember in the story of Ruth, when Boaz bought land, ownership was passed when he exchanged the sandal. The idea is that the land is now under my foot, therefore it belongs to me. It's under my shoe. And so to cast your shoe over something was to take ownership of it. Israel in David's day conquered all three of these nations. In other words, God cast his shoe over all three of these different nations. Moab was east of Israel. Edom was south of Israel. Philistia was west of Israel. They're on the Mediterranean coast. And during the days of David, God raised David up, and, and he and the armies of Israel conquered all three of these territories. He says, who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? David had his eyes fixed on the plum of Edom. This is what he really wanted to take possession of, the rock city of Petra. You've seen Petra. Keep going there. There we go. One more. Did you, uh, did you show the picture of Indiana Jones out in front of Petra? Is that, oh, there he is right there, yeah. You know, that was the, the, the rock city of Petra was the scene used in the movie, you know, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where supposedly the Holy Grail was in the inside. They used that facade there in Petra. It was, it's an it's a incredible rock city. And during the days of David, it was a thriving city. It was, a, it was a, a prosperous city. It was the capital of the Edomites. And David believes that God is going to help him conquer this supposedly unconquerable city. He goes on, Is it not you, O God, who cast us off, and you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? David recalls when Israel went out to battle without God's blessing. And a terrible outcome occurred. You remember when we talked about that back in 1 Samuel. The ark was stolen. The priests were killed. The war was lost. The nation was enslaved. David now knows that he needs God. He doesn't dare go into battle without God fighting for him and with him. And so he prays, give us help from trouble. For the help of man is useless. <laughs> you come to that conclusion? If you haven't yet, you will. Give us help from trouble, Lord, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is He who shall tread down our enemies. The battle is the Lord's. If we succeed, if the enemy is defeated, it's because God has done valiantly, not us. Well, Psalm 109 was also written by David with a dagger in his back with the proverbial dagger stuck in his back. Man, nothing hurts worse than a betrayal. Do you agree? Boy, it hurts. 
David agonizes in verse 1. He says, Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. Oh my, do Christians tell lies about each other? Do believers in Jesus speak ill of each other in deceitful ways that cast doubt and aspersion on people? And if you're a new Christian, you might say, well, I hope not. How could they? But if you've been around a while, you know to say, I'm afraid they do. Christians are humans, and humans tend to hurt each other. As the poet puts it, against a foe I can defend, but heaven help me against a disloyal friend. You remember Jesus' deepest wounds. They didn't come from the jeers of the Jews. They didn't come from the Roman rods. They came from the denial of his own disciples. And David tells us here, they have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers. Notice that. In return for my love, they are my accusers. Doesn't that hurt just to hear those words? David's love has been repaid with false accusations. Here's what I've learned in 28 years of ministry. Love always flows downward. Love always flows downward. Here's what I mean by that. A child doesn't love his father as much as the father loves the child. And his child won't love him as much as he loves his child. Love always flows downward. And this is also true in our relationship with God. You will never love God as much as God loves you. And I'll tell you one more thing. Most folks don't love their pastor as much as their pastor loves them. Love always flows downward. What did David get in return for his love? He was falsely accused. And he could have gotten angry and ugly and launched a smear campaign of his own but he didn't. He prayed, verse 4, but I give myself to prayer. He went to God for defense and vindication and healing. He says, thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. The dagger in David's back had been put there, believe it or not, by his own son Absalom and by his trusted counselor and good friend Ahithophel. Imagine this, his own son and his best friend had turned on him and had conspired against him to steal his throne. Can you feel his pain? His own son? Can you feel the dagger sinking into his back? David was brokenhearted. And I'll tell you from experience, it doesn't matter how often this happens to you, it doesn't get easier the next time. It's still hard. You've heard the old saying, you take care of your character and God will take care of your reputation. That's true. But I think David would add one more line and let Jesus take care of your wounds. Pray about it. Go to God in prayer when you feel betrayed, 
when he should have been nine. David does pray, but here's the problem. It's the content of his prayer. But what follows here in Psalm 109 is one of the most vindictive, vicious, violent, vehement prayers in all the Bible. David asked God to torture his enemies. In fact, because his prayer is so over the top, some Bible commentators interpret it as the prayer that David's enemies prayed toward him, not vice versa. Others remind us that David is king, and justice is the government's job, and so King David is righteous in executing a just reward for his enemies' crimes. 